Kenai for the Kenai. I'm Aaron, and as always, I'm here with Cobra today. Unfortunately, Eric is out of the office today as he's get gearing up for finals week. Uh, school's coming up to an end, so good luck to Eric on the rest of his finals. He's sticking true to that 4.0, so we're proud of him. But we're here with Dale today. Uh, Dale is the Medical Director of Behavioral Health for Central Peninsula Hospital. Dale, how's it going today? Good. How are you today? Dandy, man. Awesome. I just messed up. I think it's worth noting, though. I just completely messed up the intro. So this is intro number two. <laughs> I called Dale Dave for the first time in my entire life. I coach with Dale, actually. We coach wrestling together. I've never messed up his name a day in my life until just now. But it's besides the point. Um, we're here to talk about some of the programs that Central Peninsula Hospital is offering today, and specifically the Medical Assisted Treatment Program. Uh, if you could give our listeners just a little rundown about that. Sure. Well, um, you know, there's different approaches to um, treatment for substance use disorder. Uh, Medical-assisted treatment or medication-assisted treatment is just one layer of, uh, of treatment. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're talking about um, typically uh, prescription medications, um, specifically uh, Vivitrol, um, Methadone, uh, Suboxone are the three main medication-assisted treatments that, uh, that we utilize. So uh, we kind of talked a bit uh, off a recording about how there may be kind of a stigma associated with these medications and their use uh, in aiding people. Do you know kind of maybe how those arose or what what common misconceptions there are about medically assisted treatment? Well, you know, there's um, certainly with all three of these uh, medications, they they work in in, uh, in different ways. I, I guess I could touch on that, but. Uh, uh, but yes, there still is a, a, a stigma among even people in recovery um, uh, where there's some doubts or questions in regards to, you know, if they're on a, a medication to help them with their cravings, um, am I not just um, trading one drug for another? Um, uh, is this just another another crutch, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it even goes back to, you know, uh, longer in history where there was a period of time where even in NA and AA groups, um, even using uh, uh, antidepressants was seen a, as a negative uh, type mm-hmm. of thing. And I think that that's um, uh, evolved over time to kind of have a better understanding that there are people with uh, neurotransmitter imbalances in their brain, um, no different than there's people with hypertension that benefit from using medications sometimes. And, and so um, I think it's, uh, this is just another thing that has to evolve over time. Uh, for uh, having uh, groups that are going to be more accepting to uh, people that uh, are in recovery and also under, you know, MAT um, treatment. There is, it's actually interesting, you know, because there is, like, just hearing about this, and we've learned a little bit about MAT just, you know, through doing our recordings and, like, the last year we've been doing this, and you can definitely see it from very two very different perspectives, you know, like, because you can take, like, uh, substance abuse disorder and people who suffer from that in this realm over here where it's like oh there's something you know traumatic there's something deeper than just you know than just the physical part of it where it's like you know this led to this which led to this you know and I'm covering up this pain or I'm doing this and I've started covering up this pain you know and like so I need to go back and address that and fix that and then I'm not going to have these recurring problems anymore these foundational problems mm-hmm. and then there is a very like medical, physical explanation of dependence as well in mm-hmm. substance abuse, you know, and so. Well, we're still figuring it out. It's uh, our, there's multiple theories in regards to um, 
addiction and why some people have uh, struggles with addiction and others don't. Uh, there's not a, um, a black and white answer uh, as of yet. Um, we're still figuring out how the brain works. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the research and how their brain works is just um, um, uh, increasing, you know, every year in our understanding of how this works and how addiction is related to that. I've, um, uh, I've been a practicing uh, physician assistant for 20 years, 21 years now. Um, but I've only been specializing in addiction for two years. Mm -hmm. And so um, my understanding has um, quite evolved even just during that two-year period of time as well. You know, when I first came into addiction medicine, I was similar to probably a lot of other providers out there thinking, why would we put somebody on a medication that is still an opioid to treat mm -hmm. their opioid addiction? Yeah. And so after having interaction with 450 or 500 people struggling with addiction, um, my uh, attitudes have had to change and evolve over time as well. Just kind um, of the uh, actual proof of seeing uh, some of these treatments change people's lives. Is, uh, is that what really drew Absolutely, it and save lives. Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, my, uh, I guess my own personal philosophy of, of uh, approach to addiction is that it's not just a, um, a, a physical issue. It's not a um, just a psychological issue. It's not just a social issue, mm -hmm. um, or it, it's also a spiritual issue. And so it's all four of those combined. Mm -hmm. And um, for a person to do well in a recovery, they really need to get a good base uh, under them physically, spiritually, mentally, psychosocially. All mm -hmm. these things need to be in good balance for all of us, you mm -hmm. know, for us to be functioning well. And, um, and so, um, you know, my focus is more on the physical aspects of that, but I certainly encourage that people get those other aspects in their lives, you know, worked on it uh, with, with, you know, different fields. You know? Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense, you know, kind of where I was like with mm -hmm. those perspectives, you know, there's not just one perspective that seems to really get the job done. Cause we've recorded with people that are like, Oh, I dove into this, you know, and then mm -hmm. it didn't work or mm -hmm. I dove strictly into this and it didn't work, you know? So I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of validity to that, that mm -hmm. balance that kind of comes with a lot of this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But even uh, making taking the first step easier seems like a great plan of taking that physical aspect out for people who are afraid of pain or afraid of withdrawing really hard and uh, what symptoms are associated with that, having a uh, alternate option where they know that it's not, they don't have to deal with that. There's still all the other aspects mm -hmm. that are definitely mm -hmm. important and, and definitely hard work, but knowing that there's an option other than I'm just going to feel terrible uh, that, I mean, that must be really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my own, you know, when somebody comes into our detox unit, I usually sit down with them and take a very thorough uh, history of their substance use, you know, how they started using, um, what substances they've been using, how much, how often, et cetera, et cetera. And so my basic approach may be different than another provider's basic approach, but, but in some ways it's similar. So what I would tell you that, for instance, if I had somebody come in and say, uh, I'm 27 years old, um, I just started using heroin three years ago, I'm now using about a half a gram a day, um, uh, that's, a, that's a relatively short period of time that their brain has been exposed to, to opioids. Mm -hmm. And so in that instance, I would usually recommend uh, somebody actually go through a physical detox where we use medications to help them 
manage their symptoms over a period of five or seven days. And then we get them onto a medication like naltrexone. Naltrexone comes in two different forms. It comes in pills and also an injectable form. I prefer the injectable form because then a person doesn't have to remember to take a pill every day. And then the medication Vivitrol, it's, it's not a substitute for a drug. It's basically uh, an opioid blocker in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it um, not only helps reduce uh, cravings, uh, day-to-day cravings for someone, it also, if they have a minor relapse, they go out and they smoke some heroin or they use a small amount, they typically won't receive any kind of euphoria mm-hmm. from that smaller dose, initial yeah. dose. Now, certainly I've had lots of my uh, patients tell me that they've used beyond the capability of coverage, and, and th- there's certainly that. And there's a great risk of being on Vivitrol. One of the downsides you were asking me about um, is that some people who go on Vivitrol will then turn around and try to over come it by using mm-hmm. and then that puts them at a significant risk for overdose yeah. and death because it won't prevent death mm-hmm. it won't prevent the respiratory suppression yep. you just won't have the full euphoria mm-hmm. um, or the feeling good while you're dying right. yeah and so that's the the benefit and, and drawback and the reason i um i say f- uh, that's my primary approach is that um, if a person's brain has not been habituated more than 10 or 15 years on opioids, mm-hmm. um, Vivitrol has been, uh, uh, I've had a great success with, with uh, folks um, maintaining uh, their uh, sobriety and abstinence uh, on Vivitrol for both alcohol and opioids. It's, it's specifically indicated by the FDA for both of those. Um, if I have someone that started using opioids when they were 13 or 14 years old. Um, They've been using more than 10 years. They're injecting more than a gram or two a day. Or if they have a lot of psychosocial issues going on, Mm -hmm. um, uh, they have a lot of legal problems going on, they're going through, you know, major divorce and custody battles with OCS. Those are my clients that I'm usually recommending, hey, you've got a lot going on in your life. How about we stabilize your opioid use disorder get you on Suboxone, mm-hmm. prevent you from going into any withdrawal, get you feeling without any cravings, yeah. and then help you address all these other issues in your yeah. life. Yeah, it's kind of where that balance comes into yeah. play. And then later on, you know, whether it's six months or a year, you've got all these other situations possibly settled down mm-hmm. and you know dealt with, we can talk about a consideration possibly of, of bringing you down off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so buprenorphine, which is uh, Suboxone, um, is a what we call partial agonist, meaning that it's not a full stimulator of the opioid receptor in the brain. It mm-hmm. stimulates it a little bit, and it binds onto the receptor in the brain. It it does have a stronger affinity for that receptor in the brain than than heroin does, mm-hmm. and most other opioids like hydrocodone, oxycodone. Yeah. Um, so if you use some of that, it's it's supposed to not let you um, overcome it until you get to a certain really super high doses. Yeah. So, it, you know, again, it, it prevents a person from going into um, having to suffer through the withdrawal process, but it also stabilizes them from a physical standpoint. And again, giving them the opportunity to say, I don't have to be chasing buying street drugs every day. Mm-hmm. Now I have a drug that's making me, keeping me from feeling terribly sick. Yeah. And I can um, address all these other underlying issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially um, with what you were mentioning there, mm-hmm. I guess the concept of, I'll quit, but I'll just wait until whatever's happening settles down because mm-hmm. thinking that you can't afford to break down either physically or, you know, mm-hmm. even maybe emotionally mm-hmm. and having other options 
it definitely seems to cover, I guess, that kind of mm -hmm. uh, mentality. Right. So, and, and again, my, uh, my personal approach um, it might be a little different than others, but I like to use the Suboxone strips or the tabs um, for stabilization for a five to seven day period and get everyone on to the subuclate injection. The subuclate injection is a once a month shot of buprenorphine. It stabilizes uh, uh, people who are on a, a dosing range of between eight and, and 24 milligrams of Suboxone a day. And um, it's, it's a once a month shot. It's very smooth. Um, people um, uh, I have uh, uh, tell me that are on this medication, they don't wake up every day and think I gotta take my strip, you know, mm -hmm. and I need my strip right now. So it also kind of um, deals with that um, pattern of behavior of um, I'm feeling sick, I take something, I feel better, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that piece is taken away uh, or out of the equation of a pattern of behavior. You're no mm -hmm. longer taking a medicine to not feel sick every day. Yeah. Um, it also um, is, is quite nice because it's so long acting, it'll stay in the system after, if a person gets two or three uh, subuclade injections, it'll actually stay in their system for four to six months. And so if I have a person that's working on a fishing boat or working up on the slope or um, can't, um, has transportation issues, and they happen to miss an appointment with me, it's not like, bam, they're going to go into automatic withdrawal yeah. the day after they miss their injection. Mm -hmm. So they really have four to six weeks yeah. of time frame to come in and see me if they missed a dose. Right. Uh, and so it's a, it's a matter of convenience. Or for somebody who's pending possibly an incarceration, Mm -hmm. You know, if we can get a couple shots into them, they, they won't have to worry about going through acute withdrawal curled up in a ball in a jail cell. You know, it, it'll, yeah. it'll, it'll keep them stabilized. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of benefits with it. Of course, you know, um, I know all about the, the clients tell me about uh, folks that deal and trade with their strips. You can buy them off the street. And I have a lot of my clients tell me that when they were on the strips, they automatically also became a target, meaning that if I know that you have strips, yeah. <laughs> right. hey, how about, you know, you sell me one of your strips and I'll give you a little of this. And so mm -hmm. it ends up, it makes you a target for other people to draw and, and try to wheel and deal with, with what you have. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not a good situation to be mm -hmm. in when you're early in recovery as right. well, you know. Um, Definitely. It almost pushes you back to just that mentality, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, of the running and gunning and wheeling and dealing, you know, this is just yeah. what I do kind of thing. And I imagine right. that's kind of a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. You know, just even try. You could be trying as hard as you want. You know, to keep living s sober more. Right. You know, right. but once you get kind of fall back into that, you know, mm -hmm. it'd be pretty difficult to. Mm -hmm. You've been doing it for so long compared yeah. to how long you've been in recovery. You know, in this hypothetical situation, mm -hmm. like. Well, in a lot of the recovery stories, we've we've had people talk about having to make new friends and having mm -hmm. to kind of separate in order to start a new life more or less but being a target i guess and and having people uh possibly kind of hound you for for what you have uh mm -hmm. definitely not a situation you want to be in so uh, just protecting you. your strips you yeah. know like oh, uh, yeah. a lot of people don't live in really highly secure you know day-to-day -day mm -hmm. life environments and so uh, they're always worried about somebody stealing their strips or somebody does steal their strips and then you know then they're in this constant battle and and also when they're on the strips they um uh they have to you have to come into your provider's office regularly so often oftentimes it's you know every three or four days for the first couple of weeks and then it's twice a week for you know a month or two and and then it's you know monthly and it's it, it requires a lot of transportation and time consuming whereas mm -hmm. if you get onto the the monthly injectable 
it's much simpler. It's a lot less running around trying to focus your life on getting a drug that's going to keep me from going in withdrawal, you know, yeah. instead focusing on your other aspects of your recovery. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I like the injectable. Now you're talking about, you're asking about downsides of MAT. Well, one of the downsides of using buprenorphine, it is an opioid. It's a mm -hmm. partial agonist, but still is an opioid. Yeah. So for those folks who are early, you know, I'll say less than 10 years of mm -hmm. using opioids, um, uh, if they've only been using two or three years and then I go and I uh, put them on a partial opioid agonist, that adds to their total lifetime history of exposure to an opioid. So I'm right. still exposing their brain mm -hmm. to an opioid on a long-term basis. Yeah. And so, um, again, that's why I, I usually try to take a really detailed history and, and, and talk about all the different options and the benefits and drawbacks with our patients. So they pick what's uh, possibly going to best work for them or... If they've tried something in the past that hasn't worked well, I have lots of people that come in to see me that haven't done well on strips for a variety of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And um, I talk to them about the injectable, and that seems to work well for them. Yeah. Now, granted, there's lots of folks uh, in the world, in the recovery community, that where the daily strips and films have worked well. Mm -hmm. But my observation is that those are typically people that have everything else in their life is going well for them. Yeah. They have a job on the slope, a day-to-day -day job. They have a supportive family. They have mm -hmm. all the other things in their life are going well. And it's somebody that remembers to take their medicine every day and, uh, and they're very responsible with it. Yeah. Um, but that's um, uh, the folks that I'm seeing are usually on the other end of the spectrum where there's a lot more chaos going on in their lives mm -hmm. and a lot more difficulty uh, to, to deal with. So you, you mentioned earlier, you know, starting, so if they're two to three years, have been running and gunning for about two or three years, mm -hmm. you like to go the vivid draw direction first right. until they're stable enough right. to, to move right. on to, do they move on? Do they have to move on to something else, or if it's working, no, you keep no, moving with it? No, there's or? never, with Vivitrol, which is naltrexone is, mm -hmm. the, is the drug, and there's pill form of, of naltrexone too, but you have to take it every day. Um, but uh, with naltrexone, there's never any withdrawal from it. Um, you never develop a tolerance or a dependence to it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a... It's not an opioid or it's not stimulating any kind of, it's not a, stim, a receptor stimulator, it's a blocker. It's an inhibitor. It's, yeah. Okay. Right. It's an antagonist is what we yeah. call it. And, and so, um, um, so if a person, um, and usually I recommend um, most of our clients somewhere, stay on Vivitrol for at least somewhere between 6 and 12 months. And um, if they're doing well on it and everything is going very well and then they want to try going out without it for a month, um, and then they report back that, hey, my cravings are coming back, then we just go back on and say, hey, well, let's stay on it for a year. Mm -hmm. I have uh, one person that's been on it for, I want to say about 16 or 18 months now, mm -hmm. um, doing beautifully well. And, and uh, But a lot of people are able to come off of it somewhere between uh, six months and a year yeah. and, uh, and maintain sobriety. Uh, I Maybe you got... you. You guys I probably hear this more than I do, but uh, there's an interesting phenomenon. Somewhere around nine months, lots of people relapse. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it, what is so dangerous about nine months. Do you have any kind of idea? And I, I have my own observation. It's like um, I'm not sure if it's complacency where somebody's got some sobriety under their belt. Um, they're starting to get things going back better in their life. Um, uh, and then somewhere around nine months, they either lose a job, they get into a relationship breakup or something happens and then bam, then just go right back into um, uh, a full, a full relapse. And, and so that's why around nine months, I always caution people, Hey, you're reaching that nine month danger window. So 
let's double down on your meetings and, and talking with your sponsor and uh, making sure that we're taking care of all your cravings. But, um, uh, but I'm still uh, looking for a, a better attack plan for that mm -hmm. nine-month yeah, that is actually interesting because we were just talking to somebody the other day where it was seven months, you know, and so it's really interesting. That it's like it is. I mean, from what we've noticed too, right around that nine month stretch, and I've we'd have to look back. I don't remember exactly. You remember the podcast with the other Aaron? Uh huh. Yeah, he said that basically day one he just felt like a rock star, you know, getting that early recovery boost. Just like, yeah, I'm beating this. Mm -hmm. I'm really getting through this. But then as the months progress on, it. I guess the excitement of overcoming, since it's such a regular thing at that point, it's not like you're battling this, this, uh, what, what's that term? Oh, um, cunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a cunning, uh, the disease of addiction, a theory could be that you kind of forget about how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And also talking to uh, someone else, they were saying that, like, the first week is really hard. And then you get to like six months, things are going well. But at some point, you just kind of realize that life's hard. Yeah. Like life is just hard and things yeah. are going to mm -hmm. happen and you, mm -hmm. you kind of got to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And even uh, maybe nine months could be a, a typical. Um, I think it is like that six to nine month range. You know what I mean? In between there where you start like, I feel like when people get past that, it usually goes on for a little while after that. You know what I mean? But that mm -hmm. six to nine month range is when you find like when people from our experience seem to really just realize like that life is like especially like the tornado they've created mm -hmm. and then like all like you know the reward that comes with dealing all that you know the making amends and doing all and that's difficult as well you know that's some really hard deep stuff but usually like you're in inpatient out treatment going to meetings a lot you have a lot of support system there you know and then it seems like by seven eight nine months you know as you're going to work more and doing more life stuff and just kind of transitioning out of recovery mode into living mode mm -hmm. whereas that six nine month window where you have to learn to live again and that's when people really seem to struggle mm -hmm. it's you know, like it's, the honeymoon's over and now we have to <laughs> yeah <laughs> or and something catastrophic happens yeah for the first time right you know something Since, yeah, get, right. like some kind of illness or, or something and you're like well how right. am i going to deal with this right. and and understanding keeping up with the things that got you where you are now mm -hmm. is so crucial but it's easy to forget that once the pain mm -hmm. of being where you were is kind of out of your mind mm -hmm. i think it becomes easier it's like well just one more time and that is yeah. that is the most slippery slope yeah. yeah and i mean like you said i mean the disease is super cunning you know it's waiting for something like that mm -hmm. you know to come up and for you to say well I, you know i've been it's been this long like either and then this happened like i just don't care you know what I mean? Not in a bad way. You know, it's just like that's your self-rationalizing it to yourself. That's your justification. Sure. You know what I mean? You really do. Sure. Mm -hmm. You genuinely care a lot. Mm -hmm. But then the, the d disease says to you, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, you have those thoughts I feel like creep in the, ba in the back of everybody in recovery's mind. You know what I mean? Like you kind of have that voice, you know, that voice that you don't usually listen to for the first six months because you're so focused on it. Mm -hmm. You know, month six, month seven, month eight, month nine, you're not as focused on it. You're focused on living again. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly when it's going to kind of creep back up and yeah. in. So, yeah, that's... And we know from, you know, the science and the brain scans and PET scans of the brain that it takes a, a year to 18 months for the brain chemistry to kind of normalize into a normal pattern, meaning mm -hmm. that um, uh, when a person's been using uh, substances uh, hard and heavy for a period of time, the frontal part of the brain where you make your long-term decision-making... 
um, uh, and planning and impulse control and all those types of things are, are kind of put on the back burner and you're running on your, your midbrain or your mm-hmm. uh, animal type brain, as we'll use a, a term like that, where you're just focused on my next use. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a year to a year and a half for their frontal cortex to be actually come back online and, and you to be making good, solid decisions to protect yourself, whether it's financially or emotionally or, mm-hmm. or et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I think a, a lot of folks get out there to somewhere between six and nine months and they think, I got this now, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm... I yeah. beat it. I got it. The yeah. Yeah. Over. yeah. Got her whooped. Or I can return to a little bit of alcohol use. I can mm-hmm. be a functional, you know, recreational user of this yeah. other substance over here, and, mm-hmm. and I can get away with it. Ah, uh, man. It's <laughs> yeah. a slippery slope really yeah, quick. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and it's, it's understandable. And I think that's like what we mentioned before, you know, the parts of your brain that are working in different ways. You know, you talked about the, your middle brain, the animal brain, as people say. Mm-hmm. Versus the front of your brain. And I think that's really like a hard, when it comes to stigma, a hard part for people to really wrap their mind around, you know. It's like, oh, they're making this choice, you know, to do this. Like, does nothing matter to them? Like, you know, or like they ask like all these like weird questions. Well, weird to us, I guess, but like to maybe some people normal questions. Where it's like this disease attacks you at such a, such a neuron level, you know what I mean? It's such a small detailed level, like your base foundational level where like all the things we think we need to survive, you know, food, water, Mm -hmm. shelter, all these things that come naturally, you know, taking care of your kids, you Mm -hmm. know, reproduction, like Mm -hmm. these animalistic, like root evolutionary necessities to life become completely enveloped in, oh, to do this, Mm -hmm. I need to use. Right. I, that's how I survive. I use that. Right. That's is the only thing that I'm focused on. That is my survival. Like it completely overruns an entire part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And like the thing that's a hard part for people to kind of like, you know, put their footsteps in because it sounds so. Right. Uh, yeah. It sounds they, easy. Hey, just stop. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. but there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And, yeah. and, uh, and for sure. And, um, you know, we all run on, day-to-day basis, we run on a, a, a brain reward drive system. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, of course, more to it, in my opinion, than that. But, um, but uh, you know, um, I take my kid to wrestling practice, and we wrestle hard, and he improves. I mean, I get a dopamine release from that. Right. I feel good at the end of practice. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're doing something good, right? But if I was hijacking my brain with substances, I wouldn't get that dopamine release. I wouldn't feel good about any kind of accomplishment, mm-hmm. um, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, whether it's work related or, um, relational related or, or et cetera. Um, and, and we know that from, from science that, um, that, uh, for instance, uh, women who are, um, co-occurring using, uh, uh, uh whether it be heroin, uh, methamphetamine, they have a, when they have a brand new baby, they don't release the, the same levels of hormones after birth that women do who who are not on those substances mm-hmm. and so they do not make that brain connection with their own babies yeah mm-hmm. uh, and it's um understandable that mm-hmm. that um that there's a problem there and um you know we we need to realize you know meet people where they are mm-hmm. um and we may not have a full understanding of of everything why they make the choices they do but we can still offer them help and, mm-hmm. a, and a different opportunity to to change direction and you said it took like a what was it a year to eighteen months for the wiring to kind of change into a, a 
regular reward system. Right. Do you have clients who say something to the effect of like, I'm afraid that I'm never going to feel good again or I'm never going to be happy? Absolutely. I have, I have people that, uh, you know, feel that. And, you know, there's also a lot of under, you know, with that said, there's also a lot of co-occurring disorders, you know, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, I have a lot of clients that either had evidence of chronic anxiety or depression before they even started using drugs. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a segment of the population that starts using drugs because they're self-medicating their underlying uh, anxiety, depression issues. And, and so, um, you, so you may go through uh, rehab recovery and, and, you know, clean that out of your system, but you still have the anxiety and depression there. Right. Yeah. And then um, that may not go away because that's your, that is your baseline. So then we have to address that in a different Mm -hmm. way. But um, so when people say, am I ever going to feel that connection again with, you know, this, that and the other, I I say, well, I'm hopeful that it'll be better than it Mm -hmm. was. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yet there could be something else that's going on more than just, you know, the addiction process going on. And I think that's something like, like when it comes to stigma too, that's worth addressing. You know what I mean? It's like, we wouldn't look... I mean, in a societal sense, we wouldn't look at people who are on antidepressants as negatively as we would someone who's on something like mm-hmm. Suboxone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's like, but it is, it's very... It is, but there's still a strong stigma with mental health as well, you yeah. know, with mental health issues. There's there's plenty of stigma as well as, as there. Um, I, I think it's less so, in my uh, opinion, than that's taken a lot of work over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we're, you know, science doesn't have all the answers to... to to the brain because we're just starting to figure out. I mean, there's some medicines that are coming out that work on what we call the glutamate system in the brain that is just, it's astronomically better than anything we've had before. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, what we talk about, what we're doing now, it could sound like, you know, leeches and bloodletting in another 10 or 15 years. (laughs) I mean, literally. I mean, we are advancing so quickly with our treatments and things like that. But uh, at the same time, sometimes the newest, greatest treatment ends up being falling flat on its face after we yeah. try it out for five years. So right. we always have to be guarded about the newest, latest, greatest things as well. Mm-hmm. You know. So, um, but um, yeah, it's a, a, a new and interesting uh, um, development uh, now that we're getting more dollars for research and 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 to focus on it. it you know, it's it's helping further along uh, um, our ability to help people. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if you do you meet with clients or are you more of the the manager? But you meet with clients. No, no, I I, I probably spend ninety percent of my time treating people one on one, and and ten percent doing some management stuff and program development and, yeah, and guideline mm-hmm. development and that type of thing. So you talked about meeting people where they're at. Is that mm-hmm. kind of uh, is it pretty easy to get a hold of you or to to um, find out a way to work out a plan with you or is there a lot of steps that people have to take to no no it's very simple so um if uh somebody doesn't know like um what is going to be the best approach for me if they're interested in just even just uh, exploring options to get them onto a road of recovery they can make an appointment with me they just call our uh, desk here at uh, serene house intake office and um, i have outpatient office hours on on wednesday thursday and friday and uh, they can schedule an hour-long consult with me, and we'll just um, chit-chat about um, uh, w- what they're doing, what they would like to do, what they would like to change. And, uh, and at least from my perspective, I can share different alternatives that might help them get there. Right. Um, and it's just a low-key, 
talk, you know, discussion. It's, it's, I'm not going to force medication or force options on anybody mm -hmm. or anything mm -hmm. of that nature. We're all a, we're a completely voluntary program, you know, so, um, uh, we do take some people sometimes referred by OCS, et cetera, but, um, I don't, I'm not engaged in any kind of programs where uh, it's mandatory treatment, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. myself. So, um, uh, and, and that's their easy first step is to come in. And even if somebody's, you know, if somebody comes in and they're acutely sick and, and dope sick and, you know, curled up in a ball and vomiting, of course, I'm going to offer them, you know, sta acute stabilization and get them into our, you know, our first level of step is usually care transitions, which is a, uh, we call it a drug detox facility, but it's also stabilization. Some mm -hmm. folks do better off getting stabilized on, on buprenorphine over a period of days and then getting onto the, the subuclade. And some people want to just complete their detox in a medically supported environment and, uh, and then go on to Vivitrol. Um, and again, that's just another step. And then while they're there, they get to talk with our counselors about other additional treatment options because just dealing with the medical side piece of it is just a small part of it. The other part comes into the counseling and the, mm -hmm. and the mental health treatment. And, and so the, the next option could be for them possibly uh, to go into residential care, whether it's at Serenity House or Rainforest or Sitka or Dina Coy. It, it could be at one of those programs. Um, uh, it could be just intensive outpatient uh, treatment, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's at Cicada or, uh, or one or the other, uh, you know, the best plan for them could be a faith-based, uh, um, a group, you know, through, mm -hmm. through their own local church, uh, et cetera. So there's lots and lots of different options, but it has to start with sometimes just, uh, coming in the door and exploring what are all the options available. Yeah. And you, you definitely want them to succeed and you have the experience mm -hmm. to create a plan that would result in pretty much the best chance of success. Mm -hmm. Perhaps uh, drugs like Suboxone maybe have gotten a bad rap because they've been used without the uh, consultation of someone who, like you, who's experienced, right. and they think, oh, I'm just going to get clean, mm -hmm. or I, I know mm -hmm. that this will take away uh, the withdrawals, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to do this my own way. Is there a reason why that's a kind yeah. of... Well, I'll say this. is my, my patients have educated me more about drug use and the best way to treat drug mm -hmm. addiction than, than any of the books or the highfalutin, uh, you know, meetings that I've gone to with, you know, uh, experts. I mean, literally just listening to somebody and their history is usually that tells me everything I need to know. They'll tell me what will work best for them. It's just picking out the, the pieces. But um, for, so for instance, I, I, I do have patients that come in and say, oh, I tried Suboxone once and it made me so sick. And then I just ask them, you know, well, did you wait until you were in mild to moderate withdrawal symptoms before you took it? Well, I had some, you know, some sweats and felt restless. So I took one. I said, well, then you probably kicked off a bunch of heroin off your receptors and, 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 and you threw yourself into a precipitated withdrawal. So it probably made you feel worse, didn't it? Yeah, it made me feel worse. And I said, okay, you didn't quite wait long enough before you started it. Mm -hmm. And so that is a, is not an uncommon story. Yeah. And, um, the other thing is, is there is a little bit of uh, naloxone in each uh, sub suboxone film, and so um, uh, not much of that is absorbed in the mouth or in the gut. But sometimes people forget that there is a little bit in there. So if you take it, um, so let's say you used heroin four to six hours ago, and then you start craving, and then you take uh, a suboxone dose, you're probably going to get sick. Yeah. It's not to be expected. Usually, we don't start a suboxone induction until somebody hasn't used for 
at least eight to 12 hours, and they start to have all the classic signs of, of, of withdrawal symptoms, and then they usually uh, feel completely reversed and better within an hour. So there's a, there's a, a period of time where there'll be some initial uneasiness or uncomfortable, but once you get them stabilized, they're, they're back to their normal selves, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And really driving home the point that it's not, what you do isn't a place where people walk in and you tell them what's wrong with them and tell them how to fix it right. and like, okay, and they send them on their way. Right. It's like, this is a conversation. This is planning out recovery. This is mm -hmm. getting access to the tools that present the best chance of success. Mm -hmm. So people uh, coming to you and, and talking to you is really just is beneficial. Right. It's completely. just a step and, and everybody... Uh, you know, I had one of my um, my clients tell me before is very uh, like an epiphany. As she's told me, she said, "There's a thousand ways into addiction, and there's also a thousand ways to get out of it." Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what works best for you, you yeah. have to you have to figure that out. And so that's where you have to use all the tools in your toolbox to figure out how to get get onto a path of recovery. And uh, that's talking with oftentimes a medical provider, you know, it could be a spiritual director, somebody in your church, it could be a mental health counselor, and it could be a substance use counselor, getting into NA meetings, AA meetings, there's all these different tools that we have to help people get onto recovery. Yeah, that support is really out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, I feel like it can be a combination of all of those, honestly, and is mm -hmm. it usually, I would imagine it usually is a combination mm -hmm. of all those that really have mm -hmm. a lot of success, you know, kind of addressing all, like we talked about earlier, all these different pockets of needs that each person has, you know what I mean, and somewhere along the lines of their own, um, their own needs, really. My pockets may be different than yours and the next person's and the next person's, so, right. yeah, that's really interesting. You said um, there were, you had four layers to this medical assisted treatment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you could run those, run through those four. So us. we, so our, uh, kind of our four, four layers that we have in our program is we have, um, so we have an outpatient medical um, uh, facility, uh, which, which I see folks, and then we also have uh, another uh, provider, uh, uh, Kathy's a nurse practitioner. She actually specializes in women's health, so a lot of our women end up seeing her for, for those issues as well as their addiction issues, and she's here on Mondays. Um, and then, um, so from the outpatient medical aspect, and then we have for people that um, are just um, unable to cut down and, and stop using and detox themselves, um, we have care transitions, which is usually people stay there for between five and seven days. Um, we have nursing staff there um, to administer medications and, and give support. We also have peer support people that work mm -hmm. there as well. Um, and then... Um, so I guess the third layer is um, is uh, Serenity House itself, which is a you know residential 28-day um, rehab program where uh, people um, uh, learn not only um, new tools for coping with day-to-day -day life issues, but also their own personal um, quirks and struggles. You know, we all mm -hmm. have them. You know, mm -hmm. we all have them, and if we can't identify them, it's hard to ever cope with them yeah definitely <laughs> you yeah know? you and don't we know all what have you them. know until you know it. yeah that's yeah. right and so um that's where they work on those things uh and then um after serenity house if, if somebody doesn't have a good healthy living environment to return to we also have diamond willow which is a sober living center um uh it's a, a residential um uh, basically it's a almost like a, a live-in apartment kind of complex uh, where people can live there in a safe, sober environment, but also come to intensive outpatient 
they do their daily group meetings uh, and that type of thing while they're also working on whether it's further education, working on their job skills, mm -hmm. um, all those different uh, types of things. And so um, we're really blessed in this small community to have a comprehensive options mm -hmm. for substance use. Even in, you know, Anchorage, they don't have some of these components. And, yeah. and uh, I talked to other providers in the state, and uh, it's it's a struggle to to just try to do one piece of it and not have everything available at our disposable uh, dis disposal to help uh, help people into recovery. So if someone walked through your door and they had no idea how they were going to get into recovery, but they just knew that they wanted to. Mm -hmm. They could they could come see you, talk mm -hmm. to you, and and figure out what could work for them. Absolutely. And if they're um, willing and motivated, I mean, literally for the next year to year and a half, they would have no uh, worries or concerns about paying for a food bill, paying for electrical bill, paying for, I mean, so all these things can actually be kind of taken off the table for them. All they have to do is focus on their recovery and their sobriety, hmm. and, and it'll be taken care of. That's amazing. That is amazing. And we do hear that a lot, you know, from our previous podcasts and a lot of our recovery stories, just, just how, especially for a small community, how amazing this recovery community is, number one. I mean, and then within that, all the resources that we do have here, you know, we've done a, a number of community resources outside of Serenity House as well. You know, we've done one with Cicada. We've done one with, um, we did a five-part series with Lee Shore. Mm -hmm. You know, just, there are so many resources here in just this small little community. You know, it is pretty actually, seems pretty rare, first of all, and then second of all, pretty amazing. You know, especially you can just walk in as like your office, like you said, mm -hmm. where is your office? Well, it's uh, just up the hallway here. Just up the hallway? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right where so, we're at. We're at the Serenity Intake Office today. So they can set up an appointment with you just by calling the Serenity Intake call Office? The, call the Intake Office, and then uh, we can set up a, uh, a consultation and a good first step. Yeah. And just kind of lay out the options mm -hmm. for you. Right, right. And sometimes we find, uh, you know, uh, there's lots of family members in the community that have no idea what to do next. What do I do next? And And so they're also welcome, even if... Their loved one maybe isn't ready to take that step to come in. Um, I'm happy to talk with family members who just want to come in and sit down and talk about what options are available. What do I do now? You mm -hmm. know, I'm happy to to help them uh, try to try to make sense of all that. Yeah, definitely. Especially uh, with our podcast with uh, the other Aaron, mm -hmm. <laughs> he was mentioning how the uh, disease of addiction really does affect the people around you even to some degree, more than yourself because uh, they don't have the escape. So having the resource to understand what they're going through, how you can help, uh, definitely, definitely super huge stuff. So it's funny that, you know, we, we coach wrestling a little bit together, and, and uh, you're a much better coach than I am, by the way. But, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, my, my job here is I'm just a coach. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm... Uh, we we find people with where they're at. They may not be you know physically superior, so we got to right. work on those aspects. Or mm -hmm. they may need some work on their technique, and we work right. work on that. And mm -hmm. we find out where their own personal weaknesses are, and we we work on those. And so I I feel like I just go to work every day, and I'm I'm coaching people into a healthy life. Yeah, you know. And so uh, yeah, I love this work. It's great. Yeah, you can't yeah. make them come into practice, but you can line them up for success. That's mm -hmm. right. Hey, come on, to, just come on in, and we will try to figure out a way to help. 
Definitely. You know, that's exciting. You know, and it's exciting to have, you know, these kind of crossovers in our community, you know, because, I mean, Cobra and I, we work with a lot of different aspects, you know, of all these things. You know, we work, we do a lot of stuff with, um, with the Peninsula Points on Prevention as well. We do a lot of, like, joint um, community events and stuff like that. They're, they have a bunch of programs going on, you know, like with the Did You Know program. They have a Green Dot program. And then we have our media stuff we do with Change for the Keen Eye and our Safe, Safe, Safe program. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we get to do this podcast stuff, you know, and kind of learn more stuff like this. And then we have guys like Dale, <laughs> not Dave, you know, out in the community as well, you know, kind of like getting to work with our with the youth of our community, you know, and kind of mm-hmm. nice stuff there. So it is actually like it's interesting how this community fabric is kind of woven in a lot of ways together to kind of look out for each other, you know, and kind of keep all this going the direction we want it to, you know, and really just a community that's built on helping people, you know, which I think is a big transition in, I mean, culture from 15, 20 years ago, you know, it wasn't necessarily about not helping people. It was more about looking out for yourself first and then kind of, if I could, you know, these other people, whereas now we're seeing a lot of people, a lot of volunteers with the points of points on prevention, Especially Chase with the Keenai, we have a lot of volunteers. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people, you know, coming together and looking out for the community. So that's just, I don't know, that's a tangent, obviously, but I was really excited about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Any parting words for us, Dale? Any words of encouragement? Uh, well, we're, uh, yeah, well, I just, you know, again, I think we have uh, something really special going on in our, in our community, and uh, it's, it is uh, unique in a lot of ways. It's uh, super exciting to be uh, to be here and uh, to be available to, uh, to to help my neighbors. You know, uh, mm-hmm. can people come into the Serenity Intake Office and ask ask for you and set up yeah, a meeting? Yeah, absolutely. And... They can uh, they can come in uh, anytime. Where uh, the office is open uh, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5:30 p.m. So they can uh, come in any of those hours to fill out an application packet and ask for an appointment with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's at 245 North Binkley. Yes. Upstairs. Yep, just right next to the Soldotna Library on yep. the second floor. So maybe if you're listening to this and you think there's no hope or that there's no options, or perhaps you uh, have a loved one who you don't know how to understand them or how to help them, knowing that there is this option here at Serenity, you can come by here and uh, get some direction on kind of where to go mm-hmm. um, I think that's and great. also this weekend this Saturday from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Kenai Central Auditorium is a presentation by Dr. Brandon Hall we call him making sense of addiction he's going to nice. go over you know some of the common misconceptions with addiction and uh, and other compulsive behaviors I understand as well so yeah. Dr. Hall's uh, my one of my collaborative physicians I'm um, nice. super excited that he's uh, working here in our community now because he has a, a very strong uh, background also in behavioral health and, and substance use disorder uh, as well as being a primary care physician and so uh, I'm looking forward to attending his his uh, talk and uh, we communicate regularly um, uh, with each other and bounce ideas off of each other regularly so I hope uh, anybody who's uh, interested in learning more about the neurobiology of addiction and and maybe explain to um, family members, et cetera, about, um, you know, possibly uh, a better explanation, uh, a better understanding of, of, of why uh, people struggle with this. Mm-hmm. And what's the what's the day on that, just in case we have listeners mm, in the future? Saturday is the 4th. Yeah, May 4th. Awesome. 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. 
at Kenai Central Auditorium. Uh, there will be food, will be provided. RSVP not required, but appreciated. You can call it 907-714-4521. There's also CNE credit provided and behavioral health continue education uh, provided. If you see some of these flyers around town, Coburn and I have been vigilant in dispersing flyers. Uh, it says those behavioral health continue education credits are pending. They are not. They are a go, for lack of a better word. So, yeah, thank you. Dale, thank you very yeah, much. thank this you for your time. Been, good talking with course. you guys. Yeah, thanks for all the good information. We're excited to post this out. But, yeah, we are you and I for the Kenai.